0: I believe there is power in the name of Jesus. Okay, you got to get your amens on this morning, all right? If you, if you believe there's power in the name of Jesus, would you say amen? Yes. Excellent. Well done. You're going to need that this morning. You're going to need your amens, okay? So we're going to be working through Romans chapter 10, and I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible with you to go ahead and turn there. If you're watching online, go ahead and get your Bible out and turn with us. Maybe you have it on your phone or on your uh, iPad, or maybe have a hard copy with you. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back and the table in the back. Be sure you take one with you when you leave this morning. Really, want you to you have a copy of God's Word. This morning, we're going to see if you agree with God. That's what we're going to spend time looking at, and we'll do that in just a minute. We're going to pray. First, I wanted to let you know that we had a great meeting with Meridian Township this last week in regards to the building. And if you've been waiting for an update on where things are at in the process of of the building project. Um, Meridian Township, this last Thursday, let us know that as of tomorrow we can start clearing the land. So that's really great, right? And yeah. Um, So we're expecting this week, uh, either tomorrow or Tuesday, they're going to begin putting up what's known as silt fences or barrier fences, and then uh, removing of trees and begin clearing the property. And then one week from tomorrow, next week, Monday, On July 9th, we should receive our building permit, and they can begin actual construction at that point. So it's been a kind of a long process of getting all the permits and everything in place, but it looks like we're finally there. Um, What we do know for sure is we still would like to have people gathered together for a time of prayer out there, so we're going to give you an email, um, and, and if you can make it, if it's early in the morning, perhaps it'll work for you before work or before going to school or whatever responsibility you might have, perhaps you'll join us. So just watch your inbox for an email, it'll be coming, and we'll try and gather some people out there to pray before they actually start moving some dirt. So, um, well, let's jump over to the text. I want to pray with you before we get into Romans and ask God to be our teacher. Would you join me in that? Father, first of all, we praise you and thank you for orchestrating things with the building permits and bringing all the pieces together. We thank you for all the green lights and the way that you're confirming to us that this is the direction you want us to go. We turn our attention now, Father, to your word, and we ask that you would guide us and lead us. We've, We've confessed through song what we believe, and we're looking for you to confirm to us this morning through your Word the things that we know to be true. Show us in your Word why we should proclaim it so loudly and why we should confess it. So God, I ask for assurance this morning, and for those who are even wondering or maybe just exploring, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would surround them to help them to understand your love and your forgiveness and what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray for our church that we would step into this with a sense of being taught by You, and we ask that You would do this in Jesus' name, amen. We learned last week in chapter 10, verse 4, that Paul ended by saying, this is for everyone, but it's not for everyone. You might remember that qualifier if you were here. He said, this salvation is for everyone, but it's not for everyone because he went on to say, it's for everyone who believes. You have to actually believe and you begin thinking about what that belief looks like because as a result of belief, you are grafted into what the Bible calls the new covenant and therefore you're made perfect in God's sight and we need that because… We are not perfect. So belief is a really big deal. Watch with me on the screen to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So this faith, this belief is huge. Why does God demand faith? Have you ever wondered that before? Why is that such a big deal? Why does He want us to believe? That's the very thing we're going to examine in Romans chapter 10 this morning. It was actually written to clarify why faith is so important. Go with me to verse 5 if you would. You'll see it on the screen or maybe you have your Bible open. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. In other words, anyone trying to rely on the system of works, anybody trying to rely on the law, they're going to be held accountable for everything that the law requires, every single detail. And if you fail in just one detail, well, you've screwed up the whole thing. You've failed every component of it. Scripture says this, James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. It actually goes on to say that there's a curse on people who try and live their entire life to earn God's favor through a system of works or through the law. Look with me on the screen at Galatians, Galatians mentioned that very curse. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, and he goes back to Deuteronomy and begins quoting Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So the dark side of the work system is this. There's a curse that rests on anyone who tries to live that way by a system of works because we're not perfect, and yet we need to be perfect, and God says, well, you're not perfect, and so it's a vicious circle, and you can't ever get to that place where you can please God by the law. And they set themselves up for a fail, because they chase after that very thing, and they set the standard of what success and failure looks like. And Moses says, if you set that for your standard then you're going to be measured by that very standard because righteousness is based on the law in your world and that demands absolute perfection in every single detail. You talk about living under pressure. Talk about living with a weight on you. What if you're not perfect? Exactly. Therein lies the problem because imperfect people can't live perfectly. If it were even remotely possible that you could live your entire life without any error whatsoever. If you could live your entire life keeping every element of the law and do all the works that you believe that God's called you to do, and you never lied, and you never had anger towards anybody, and you never coveted your neighbor's possessions, and you never lusted after one person, and you honored your mother and your father if you kept all of that stuff, but in the last week of your life, you messed up in just one detail, one little point, you'd be just as guilty and just as condemned as a person who failed in every point. It's all or nothing according to the Bible. So Galatians 3.11 says this, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. So I can summarize this first part really succinctly. If you're pursuing heaven, by your works, by doing enough good things. Maybe God will just like you well enough to let you in because you've been such a good person. You're going to be judged by that standard on the basis of that effort. And it's impossible to keep all the law because we're not perfect. So the failure of the work system is it results in eternal damnation. That's part of the reason Paul wrote what he did in Romans 4.15. Think back to a year ago when we were in chapter 4. It said this, the law brings about wrath. So by the system of working for perfection, we're left to our own capacity. That means there's only one other option. If you can't get there by doing enough good things, then what are you left with? Because I'm not perfect. Well, you're left with the mercy of God. You're left with faith. That's all you're left with. Do I believe or not believe? Because I can't get there through my actions. So verse 6 says this, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's reaching back again into the book of Deuteronomy, and I want you to watch by looking at the book of Deuteronomy how closely God links internal faith with external actions. Watch this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Lord your God will prosper you abundantly if you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes, which are written in this book of the law. Well, it sounds like a system of works, but watch. If you turn to the Lord your God with your heart and your soul, see, there's obedience, but this obedience comes from inside, from the core from the being of the individual. It's not just external action. So God's standard for holy living has always demanded an internal commitment. So the promises are reliant upon the heart and soul. So if you go back and you check the Ten Commandments, I mean, we ultimately think of the law. We think of the commandments of God. Thou shalt not. You'll find that every one of those is not primarily about external behavior. It's primarily about internal belief. Do I believe that God wants the best for me or not? It's about internal commitment. Here's an example for you. This comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And watch the commandment. And you shall love the Lord your God. Well, how am I supposed to do that? With all your heart and with all your soul. See, it's internal. So let's understand this phrase he used in verse 6. And verse 7, when he said, who's going to ascend up into heaven to bring Jesus down? Or who's going to go down into the abyss to raise Jesus up? How do I understand that? Here's Paul's point. Even if it were possible for you to go into heaven and try and capture Jesus and bring him down, You cannot gain salvation that way by first searching for Christ in heaven or by going into the abyss and trying to bring Him up from the dead. The righteousness of God doesn't require you to go on some impossible journey, looking all over the universe trying to find a solution, but yet that's what many people do. As an old theologian, he's not an old dead theologian, he's still alive. He's just an old theologian. His name is Jeffrey Wilson, and he wrote this back in 1969. The sheer perversity of unbelief is shown by the many who prefer to undertake an impossible odyssey rather than put their trust in an accessible Christ. You don't have to go long distance. So how do I understand faith? If if you're new to church, maybe you've heard people talk about faith all your life and you're like, how do I understand this? Here's a simple way to understand what faith is. Believe what God said is true. You want a really simple definition? That's it. Just believe what God said is true. So if you want to understand biblical faith, understand this. God is not asking you to chase after some vague superstition. And He's certainly not asking you to work yourself into an emotional frenzy. Or or maybe, if I just concentrate hard enough, maybe then, well, that's faith and faith. That's, That's you trying to conjure something up. No, just believe what God said is true. You've got to take God at his word. So Paul says this in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. What does it say? The word is near you. It means you don't have to ascend up into heaven and try and capture Jesus. Or you don't have to descend into the abyss and try and raise him up. God's already cleared a path, and it's clear and available, it's right near you. So Paul very subtly introduced two things in that statement. He introduced your mouth, and he introduced the confession of the heart. And he brought it in very gently, and we have to stop and ask ourselves, well, what does the heart do? Well, the heart believes, Well, what does the mouth do? The mouth confesses. It's what mouths and hearts are for. The mouth confesses what the heart believes and you see this all the time in our culture. If you've been to a wedding recently, at a wedding you would watch a bride and a groom stand before a crowd of people and they would confess what they believe because it's coming from the core of who they are. Those vows are not something they take lightly, they take it seriously because it's what they believe. We do this in the courtroom. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth and when you become a witness, You're witnessing to the thing you know to be true at your core, but your mouth confesses it. You do this when you apply for a job. You sit before a potential employer, and the employer says, tell me about yourself, and you would say, well, this is who I am. And you speak from the mouth about the core of who you are. We do this all the time in our society. So Paul's building to this phenomenal conclusion when he says, what is it that opens the door? If you can't get there by your own standard, if you can't do it through the system of law and through works, what is it that opens the door? Well, it's the confession of the mouth, and it's the belief of the heart. It's not about laws. It's not about culture. It's not about a system of rules and works. See, Paul's marching headfirst right into this reality. We've got a supreme need. We need perfection. But we can't get there. We can't be perfect without Jesus, so what do we do about it? So he unloads his arsenal with perhaps the most beautiful, concise statement in all of the Bible about getting perfection. Go with me to verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Got your amens on this morning? That's a good one to say amen to, right? I know a lot of people who came to Christ because of that verse. A lot of people understood, okay, that's simple. I get that. I can understand that. Albert Einstein is famous for saying, if you can't explain something simply, it's because you don't understand it, right? Paul understood that. He said, I get it. I'm going to explain it really simple. This is what it takes. You've got to understand you can't get there through works. You've got to confess And what you're confessing is coming from your heart because you believe. Today, there is enormous confusion about the way of salvation. And I don't mean in society in general alone. I mean even within the church because many churches have stopped teaching the Word of God I am here to tell you this morning, the way someone comes to salvation, they get perfection, is still exactly the same way today as it was 2,000 years ago when Paul sat down to write the book of Romans. If you want salvation, if you want the righteousness of God this morning, which wipes out all of your sin, past, present, and even future sin, Jesus alone can do that, and He'll give you heaven in return. So if you want that, you take hold of Jesus, and you do it by faith, and confession. That's exactly what Scripture is talking about. So Paul's point is the mouth confesses what the heart believes, and when the heart believes that God raised Jesus from the dead, the result is you're going to declare Him as Lord. You're going to say, He's Jesus, the Lord of my life, and I want you to let that sink in for just a moment for this reason. In the era that Paul lived in when he wrote Romans, there were many lords. Many L O R D, small l, small o, small r, small d. It was a way of recognizing somebody who's a superior to you to call them Lord. Have you called anybody recently in your life Lord? Probably not. You probably don't show up at work and say to your supervisor, Hello, Lord, good to see you this morning. We wouldn't do that, right? because it's not part of our culture, so we look at this word in a different way, but he had to be very deliberate about using this word, Lord, and it's the word in the Greek language, "Kyrios." and here's why this is very significant to you, because in the world that he lived in, there were many lords, but when you use the word "Kyrios," it meant something very specific, because when the Greek people who wrote and spoke in the Greek language looked at the Old Testament Word of God… They looked at the name of God, the name Yahweh, and they needed to understand how can we bring that over into our world, into our language, because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, yet they lived in a world in which people spoke Greek. So those who were interpreters of the Hebrew language would look back at the name, I am that I am, the name Yahweh, God's personal name, and they translated it as the word kurios, So Paul has taken the name Yahweh and brought it into Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as God, Jesus as Lord, you see what he's driving at here. Paul has purposely put Jesus precisely where Yahweh was in the Old Testament. Look with me at an example in Joel chapter 2 from the Old Testament, Joel 2.32. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, that sounds a whole lot like Romans 10.9, doesn't it? You'd think that maybe Paul was an expert in the Hebrew language and really understood it. Well, he was. He understood exactly what he was writing when he wrote Hebrews or Romans 10.9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You're going to be saved. That sounds just like Joel 2.32. So let's finish it out. Verse 10 says this, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. All the way through chapter 9, if you've been with us for the last couple months, you saw this to be true, all the way through chapter 9 and through chapter 10, Paul keeps talking about the righteousness, the righteousness, the righteousness. You've got to have it. You've got to have God's perfection. And we're not perfect, so we've got to have it. But how do we get it? Well, he's made the case. It's not based on the false righteousness based on the law. It's not based on the system of works. It's based on the true righteousness, which is found in Jesus. And he's done something enormously significant in verse 10. He's introduced the word salvation. he have been talking about righteousness, and now he's linked righteousness with salvation. Righteous is what you become. The moment that you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, God saw you and sees you in this moment as righteous, even if you don't feel righteous. You may not feel righteous in the moment, but God sees you that way. Righteous is what we become, but salvation has to do with what we escape. And Paul has just introduced the word salvation. So the first has to do with eternal life, but we don't deserve that. But the second part has to do with the eternal punishment which we do deserve, but we don't receive it. Amen. Praise God. So on one side, you've got His righteousness issue, which is God's. It's His. And He says, I'm giving it to you. I'm giving you my righteousness because you don't have it, but you confess Jesus, and therefore, I transmute it to you, to you who believe. You see this perfection in Paul's writing when he talks about his own conversion coming to Christ. In the book of Philippians, let me show you an example. Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through what, church? Faith. I get it through Faith. I get it through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, the righteousness which is in faith. So on the opposite side, one side he's talking about righteousness, on the other side he's talking about salvation, and that's deliverance from the very thing that separates any one of us from God, sin. So we need salvation from that. And when we get salvation from sin, we get salvation from hell. We get salvation from sin and deliverance from hell, and Paul's making it clear for those actions to take place, you've got to have faith because the work system doesn't work. You've got to have faith to be saved. And that belief results in confession, the creed like we stated earlier today, that Jesus is Lord. Now, here's a problem. Many people acknowledge Jesus as God. Last time I checked, last survey I read, 83% of the American public, 83% of your nation believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's enormous. Do you look around your country and think 83% of people are living like they believe that Jesus is Lord? You know, it's, it's something probably for people to analyze, but by and large, you'd have to say, no, it doesn't look like it, but according to what we understand, You have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, so what's He driving at here? What does that mean? Well, Paul is talking about a deep conviction that comes from the core of the being without any reservation whatsoever that someone would confess Jesus. What does that mean? Well, here's the thought behind it. The Bible acknowledges that even demons recognize the reality of God and the oneness of the Godhead, that demons are monotheistic. Let me show you the statement. And you'll see it in James 2.19 on the screen. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So fallen angels are orthodox in their theology. They have a solid understanding of the Godhead. How do I know that? Just by that statement in James 2.19 alone, I see them as monotheists, but here's what I do know about them from studying the Bible. They have seen God's work. They know more about the nature and the power of God than all of us combined, more than all of the planet of humans combined, because they've been there and they've seen it. And they know more about heaven than you do, because they lived there before the eviction notice. And they know more about judgment. And they're certainly understanding that they're destined for judgment. So James writes, and they shudder at the very thought that they will stand before that God. Here's the point. You can have demon belief. You can have demon theology. Theologically, you can be orthodox and have head knowledge. But that does not make Jesus Lord. That's just an acknowledgment of intellect. That's an understanding of what you know to be true. So a person can be under conviction. A person can have great guilt, but if they do not repent and trust Jesus to forgive them, well, what's that but awareness with no action? Just think about how hot it's been in the last couple days in driving your car. My wife was able to drive north yesterday for some responsibility, and she told me that as she was going up the highway, she saw lots of cars broken down. I talked to my own daughter, Mackenzie, in Muskegon two days ago, and her car had overheated. And the first thing I said to her was, Mackenzie, what did the temperature gauge say to you? And she said, there's a temperature gauge? <laughs> <Right>. No kidding. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you, you know, the circle on the side. And she found it and, and read it back to me, and, and the thing was reading 240 degrees. Well, you start topping out in that category, and there was steam coming up out from under the hood, and she's paying attention to that there's an issue going on here. But, but what if you know all those things and you don't take any action? What if the steam's coming out from under the hood? What if you're feeling great guilt and you take no action? There, there's just head knowledge, but there's no response going on. See a person can have really great theology and they can live morally and they can acknowledge God and they can acknowledge sin and they can say, I want eternal life, I don't want to go to hell for sure yet go to hell because of not acknowledging who Jesus is. So submitting to Jesus means having the Holy Spirit because the Bible says without the Holy Spirit abiding in you, you can't even declare Jesus as Lord. Look with me at this verse on the screen. I think this will make it very clear for you. It says in 1 Corinthians twelve three, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit brings salvation to an individual who's confessing Jesus, that one obviously is going to proclaim the Lordship because God says this is the one. You can't acknowledge Him without the Holy Spirit So if you're trying to check yourself this morning to say, is this me? Is this true of me? Can you proclaim Jesus as Lord? Here's the last thought that goes along with that. He said, not only that Jesus is Lord, but that God raised him from the dead. And there are many things that you need to know about Jesus. We need to know about the fact that he lived with temptation, but he never gave into it. We need to know that Jesus never committed any sin. We need to know that he's God incarnate. But above all those things, above all the other details, is the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead is the validation that God gave that everything Jesus did was exactly what God would do. Look with me on the screen. It says in Romans 1-4, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection is the evidence of God's approval. His approval of everything He did in dying for your sin in taking away your guilt, in preparing you for eternity, in giving you eternal life. This is God's validation, God's approval. So as the risen victor, he's been given the name that's above every name, and that name is Jesus Christ our Lord, according to Scripture. Thank you for that, amen. Way to bear in there. I'll do it again so you all get a chance. The name he's been given is Jesus Christ our Lord. There you go. You're confirming, you're confessing what you believe. See, you cannot in any way be Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The, the two don't go together. Scripture is very clear about this because if Jesus hasn't been raised, you're still in your sin. Look at me on the screen, 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. It's a bad place to be. So with the heart, we believe. So with your heart, you determine your eternal destiny. When the ancients were thinking of their heart, they were not thinking of the biological organ. When we talk about a broken heart for a person, maybe a relationship went south and they say, my heart hurts. Well, there there may be pain there, but there's also pain here in the gut. For the ancients, when they thought of the heart, the center of the being, they thought of the gut as being here, even the soul being right here. Because what happens to you when you're going through trauma? Your stomach hurts. What happens when things don't work out well on the job? Your gut hurts. What happens when your friends talk about you? You get a gut ache. What happens when you're in love? You get butterflies in your stomach, right? We understand that. So when the writers of the Bible talked about Jesus having compassion on people? They use the word splagnizomahi. I know you've probably heard that from me before, and I said it it sounds like a big $10 Italian dish. It's actually talking about a gut ache, that Jesus' gut hurt. So when they talk about the heart, they're talking about the center, the core, the soul of the entire being. And we're told with the heart, with all of who we are, we believe. And so with that believing, we determine our destiny. With that thought in mind, Jesus spoke these amazingly beautiful words in John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his begotten, that whoever believes in him with all that they are, they're not going to perish, but they're going to have eternal life. See, it all hinges on the factor of belief. So I'm asking you this morning, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you follow Him? Because as a result of that, with the mouth, we confess. And there's only one Greek word in your notes this morning. I'm going to end with this. You'll see it on the screen. And this is the word homologeo. And I I bet you've thought, if you're a church person, you've probably thought about this word confess over time and never really stopped to think about what that means because we think of it in the English language. But in the ancient world, homologeo meant to assent with one mind. Think of being at Spartan Stadium. You're at a football game, and one half of the stadium begins saying, Go green! There you go. Okay, that's what they do, right? That's a confession. Go green! Hands are in the air. We want these guys to win. Go white! The other side echoes correspondingly back and forth. And what do we do when somebody goes into the end zone? Everybody applauds and cheers, confessing. That's our guy! Homologeo. We do it all the time. When you confess, you're agreeing with God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. You're assenting with one mind, Jesus, He's mine. I believe that He was resurrected. And as a result of that confession, there's salvation. Thereby, you agree with God. So it's natural for God's people to have a fundamental confession, if you will, a creed, because God taught His ancient people to have a creed. The Jews call it the Shema, Deuteronomy 6-4. God taught them long, long ago, thousands of years ago, if you're going to believe this stuff, you're going to say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But when the church sprang up and there was an understanding of the incarnation of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead of our Savior and Lord, they had to expand the confession. They had to include things about the incarnation and about the resurrection And so they enlarge the confession, and you find Paul speaking to that very issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's an example. For us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. I thought it would be a very cool way to end the service to do exactly what you did about a half hour ago when we stood and confessed the Apostles' Creed. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me right now, and we're going to do it the way that I did it as a kid, which was fairly slow and deliberate so that we process. And I'm not asking you to say these things if you don't believe them. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, let's read this in unison. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that as you send these individuals out, that you send them out this morning with your blessing upon them, for they confess that they believe. Send us out with courage in our heart, Father, that we would declare that to be true this morning to our friends, to our social circle, to our work environment, that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God, we willingly recognize it's easy to do in a church service, and it's not so easy to do on Monday. So I pray for strength. I pray for courage. And I pray for conviction that we will speak boldly of the one who rescued us and delivered us over to eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.